The Unlikely Innovators with Mike Comito and Steve Gravel. Presented by Cambrian R&D and the Center for Smart Mining. Mike, we're back. I would say Happy New Year, but I observed the Larry David rule of three days after the New Year. I don't say it anymore, so I'll leave it to you to say Happy New Year to the fans. Well, I can't possibly do that in good conscience now. I mean, it's now been 10 days since we rang in the New Year. I think I would be way over the line. Uh, yeah, that is that is a tough line to tread, Steve, but Happy New Year nonetheless. Yeah, and I think we had a great episode uh, to, to kick things off for the Unlikely Innovators in 2023. Uh, we had Guy Kawasaki, of course, uh, on the podcast. Great time. Uh, awesome chat. Really fun. Had a lot of fun with this one. Yeah, no, it was it was a great conversation. Um, you know, I'd been listening to Guy's podcast, uh, Remarkable People, which again, he plugs it in the episode we talk about it. But if you're not subscribing to his podcast, please do that. But listen to this episode first, and then go <laughs> listen to his stuff. But uh but yeah, he he he's he's lived quite the life, and we kind of talked a little bit about you know what he does as chief evangelist of Canva, um, but I think also just a lot of the stuff that he's learned along the way, you know, different leadership styles and books he's read about business. Uh, we did talk about hockey and his passion for hockey, two things that that you that him and I share. Um, but honestly, just a fun chat. I think just we could have spent the afternoon with him. He was we were great to you know to spend the hour that we had with him i think that was uh you know we got spoiled a little bit with that what did you take away from our conversation with guys today uh just um he had mentioned you know the venn diagrams of of how he's well suited to do the podcast that he does because of his diverse interests and that really resonated with me i find that i end up having a very diverse set of interests so you know those questions to ask people who are very specifically oriented in their fields and uh, that really resonated with me that he has that breadth of knowledge and interest uh at least for myself i don't necessarily have the depth in every one of those topics but just the broadness of the interest in them is something that resonated with me and it's obviously what makes him a good podcast host and a good author yeah, no, again, I've uh, I've read his latest book, Wise Guy, which is, again, where I picked up some of those nuggets and some of the questions we asked him about today. And I do listen to the podcast now, um, just in the last couple of weeks, discovered it. And it's it's honestly in my rotation steady because, uh, yeah, he does have some remarkable people. And I, I will say, give him a pat on the back. He's really good at his craft, which he talks about as being his finest work in his career. Uh, he And he picked it up at, at age 60, right? So, again, I think uh, he had a lot mm -hmm. of interesting uh insights into the podcast especially i think his uh you know he refers to passion as the p word because you know i think it, at times people think you have to have a passion and that if you haven't found your passion by age 35 then like what are you doing with your life but you know i don't think you know podcasting is certainly a passion of his but i think you know had he not discovered that till 60 like would have he what would he have made of his career up until that point i think he still had a very successful career but i think mm -hmm. he's found his icky guy which stick around for the whole episode and you'll understand what that means um and i think that's the reason why uh you know he, he keeps getting up in the morning we appreciate that because it's uh it is a great pod yeah it's a great pod this is a great episode uh you're in for a treat uh, everyone and we'll go right now to guy kawasaki We're very pleased to be joined by Guy Kawasaki, who is the chief evangelist of Canva and the creator of Guy Kawasaki's Remarkable People podcast. He's an executive fellow of the Haas School of Business at UC Berkeley and adjunct professor of the of University of New South Wales. He was the chief evangelist of Apple and a trustee of the Wikimedia Foundation. He has written Wise Guy, The Art of the Start 2.0, The Art of Social Media, Enchantment, and 11 other books. Kawasaki has a BA from Stanford University, an MBA from UCLA, and an honorary doctorate from Babson College, and now he is a guest on the Unlikely Innovators. My, 
this is the zenith of my career here <laughs> right now. We figured you'd say that. And it's it's funny because Steve and I are talking to you from Sudbury, Ontario, which has a very strong uh, French Canadian population. So it's more common that it would be Guy in Sudbury. So, and Sudbury is also a community known for its affinity for motorsports, both on the water and on land. So if you were Guy Kawasaki in Sudbury, you'd be one of the most popular guys around for sure. <laughs> Not Guy Lefleur. Well, that, that, that'd be tough to talk for sure. But I think, uh, I think you give him a run for his money with that name, but, uh, but guy, we're, we're so happy to have you here. And you know, what we typically do at the top of our episodes, is we ask our guests, you know, the, the journey that they went on, because sometimes, you know, the title of the show is the unlikely innovator. So we want to kind of find out if your journey was unlikely at all. And sometimes when we ask these questions, we find out it's not that unlikely, but in your case, you know, when you were kind of coming of age, when you were going to pick a career path, you know, tech as we know it now didn't exist then, right? And so, did you? And I don't, I don't, metal, bro. I don't mean it. I don't. I'm just saying you wouldn't have you wouldn't have necessarily thought that you'd you know be working for Apple and then Canva, right? But uh, did you always think you were going to go into into business, or was tech something you know that you know maybe that just kind of interested you and you kind of gravitated towards that? Okay, so just to set the record straight, I started in tech in 1983. Electricity had already been invented. <laughs> Chips had been invented. Yeah. Software had been invented. Steve Jobs was already an adult. Okay. So like, yeah. don't put me, you know, next to Edison. <laughs> you know, oh guy, did you see the kite with the key on it? Yeah. <laughs> so, and you know, Orville and Wilbur had already flown. So <laughs> not that no, old. no, of course not. Of course not. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, my path, I would not say was direct or planned or anything like that. I was born and raised in Honolulu, Hawaii, which is about 100 degrees different from where you are right now. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I, I went to a public elementary school and luckily the teacher there told my parents to take me out of the public school system put me in a, a college prep school system and because of that and because my parents listened to her and sacrificed I went to a school that led me to getting into Stanford and the rest is history so from Stanford I met the guy who eventually hired me at Apple um, after Stanford I went to law school for two weeks and quit because I couldn't stand it and then I went into, uh, I went back to Hawaii, worked for Lieutenant Governor of Hawaii on a crime commission, believe it or not. And then the following year, I got an MBA or started an MBA at UCLA. And while there, I worked part-time for a jewelry manufacturer, literally counting diamonds. Um, so after that, uh, my friend from Apple hired me into Apple after two rounds of interviews for two different jobs. And, you know, then truly I was on the tech path. But um, I had wanted to be an entrepreneur all through college. And, you know, when you go to Stanford, there's something in the air about, you know, you're where Intel is and National Semiconductor and your, your, your horizons are definitely broadened there. Oh, whereas if I had stayed in Hawaii, my horizons would have probably been tourism, agriculture, government service, you know, something like that, retailing, uh, as opposed to, oh, my God, there's thing called Hewlett Packard, there's Intel, there's National Semiconductor, you know, there, there's things like that. So I would not say that 
you know, I don't have a, I don't have a background that you'd make a movie that you know, I, I left South Vietnam on the last helicopter and I landed in Fresno, California. And then I started a tech firm and now I'm a billionaire. Um, I don't have a made for movie background. But on the other hand, I don't have a background that, you know, you could have preordained as, oh, of course he'll go into tech. Um, not at all. Yeah, and I'll uh, I'll apologize for Mike on uh, on uh, unceremoniously uh, incorrectly dating you, um, but but I think what Mike was kind of getting at is like the the sort of modern conception of what we think of tech, uh, you know what 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 most lay people see in like movies like The Social Network and companies like that that are basically you know kids that meet in university and then start a company and then blow it up through investment. Um, that really wasn't around. You well, know, in, in the 80s as much. They'd go work at big companies like Hewlett Packard and stuff like that, right? Well, I mean, I, I would beg to differ. So, you know, Steve and Waz, uh, they didn't meet in college because, frankly, neither of them went to college for very long. So, But they were definitely two guys in a garage. Yeah. And it, it maybe it's Mark Zuckerberg in a dorm room uh, or Bill Gates in a dorm room, but it it – it's closer to the story you described than not. Mm, um, interesting. Yeah. And and I think that probably the richest vein for a tech startup to this day is two guys, two gals, a gal and a guy, straight or gay, LGBTQ. We got to cover all the bases these days. But these two people meet and they decide to make a product that they want to use and it could be a social media it could be software it could be hardware could be crypto god help us and and so it's it's these young people who really they don't know what they don't know because if they knew <laughs> what they're about to try they would say oh my god you know let's go work for b of a but um I think that's the nature of startups and that's the richest vein. For sure. And I think maybe what we could agree on is the term evangelist is something that has not been used as, as recently uh, in business. So I, I want, I want to for a second. I mean, when we think of evangelists, we think of, uh, you know, people standing outside of early churches trying to get people to come in and things like that. Um, if, if you could sort of ground the term evangelist for us, sure. Um, and then sure. perhaps if you want, uh, tell us a bit about what what does a day look like for someone who's an evangelist and has that position? And, and is it sort of derived from a need that's been identified within the business? Uh, maybe just take that question however you want. Yeah, we're, just, yeah. we're just interested so in that term. Let's start off with a definition. So evangelism comes from a Greek term meaning bringing the good news. So what an evangelist does is bring the good news. Now, there was Jesus, and he brought the good news of eternal life. Then there was a 2,000-year gap, and then there was me and Mike Boyce who brought the good news <laughs> of Macintosh making you more creative and productive. Today, I'm chief evangelist of Canva, which makes people better communicators by democratizing design. So the key here is that your product or service has to be good news. Now, not every product or service is good news for everybody. Don't get me wrong, but it has to be something that improves people's lives, right? 
So that's why I couldn't be an evangelist for Windows because that doesn't improve people's lives. <laughs> so anyway, so that's the crux of evangelism. Now you could make the case that it's the purest form of sales because evangelists, they not only have their, you know, personal benefit. Don't get me wrong, being an evangelist for Canva is very beneficial for me. It was beneficial for Apple. But the difference between, I think, evangelism and sales is that sales is often focused on only me. What's my quota? What's my bonus? What's my deal? Evangelism is also focused on the other person. So when I tell you to use a Macintosh, it's not just good for me. Well, it doesn't matter to me anymore, but it wasn't just good for me. It was good for you too, because you would be more creative and productive. Similarly, today with Canva, when I tell you to use Canva, don't get me wrong, it's good for me, but I also truly do believe it makes you into a better communicator. You won't have to you know, submit RFPs to get creative designs. You won't have to stand in line waiting for the, for the design department to fulfill your needs. You, you, know, you, you can roll your own. And so it's good for both of us. Yeah, and I think... Uh... My gosh, like when I when I was thinking about like what I evangelism could mean, you know, it's it's sales and uh, there's there's a couple of different departments that you think of traditionally in a business that sort of fall under that. I mean, maybe even PR, you know, yeah. if it's not if it's not just, you know, the person using Salesforce to track leads and conversions, you know, it's 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 much more than that. Right. Yes. I mean, in a sense, in a perfect world, every employee would be evangelistic whether it's the shipping clerk, the receptionist, or the CFO. And I think one of the mistakes you can make is to say, okay, so, you know, Joe and Jane, they are the evangelists. The rest of us, we don't have to do anything. We can be inward focused. It's not true. I mean, it would be better if everybody in the company were evangelistic. Now, let's just make something crystal clear. People should not confuse the term evangelistic or evangelist with evangelical. Evangelical is a whole different world, especially in the United States. Yeah, yeah, no, I can, I can imagine that. Um, I wonder if we could, uh, since you mentioned Canva, we really want to talk a bit about Canva because, I mean, um, well, maybe if you could just talk about what makes Canva different than traditional sort of visual presentation and the presentation of ideas. And do you think that, um, you know how we say like, oh, send me a deck. People often thought of, you know, using PowerPoint and right. it almost becomes a verb. Do you think Canva uh, is and can be that verb sort of utilization at some point? Oh, absolutely. It probably already is. Yeah. Uh, so the design center of Canva is that there are a large number, but limited typical kind of graphics that people make presentation book cover instagram etsy store you know i mean it's it's hundreds but it's not millions okay and and so there are these design types and the the beauty of canva is that let's take a design type 16 by 9 presentation so for the 16 by 9 presentation design type we have hundreds of templates already done with the background, with the font selected. And now all you do is change the text and put in your own pictures and you're done. So 
I tell people you can complete a Canva graphic faster than you can boot Photoshop. Because when you're presented with Photoshop, they stick you in a world that, okay, here's this whiteboard <laughs> and it's surrounded by 50 tools, none of which you know what they do. And it's like, okay, have at it. It's like if somebody said, um, they drop you in the middle of a supermarket and they say, make me a meal. Well, that's absolutely possible. You can make a meal. I think the Canva approach is more like a, a home fresh or home delivery service, which is you open the box. There's already the turmeric. There's the celery. There's the hamburger. There's the bun. And there's the potatoes. And all, you know, it's already there. Um, although that metaphor breaks down because you can kind of, make anything you well if we, this, this is why you got to like be careful using metaphors on the fly <laughs> if you were to use the i don't know first of all i don't know if canadians know what home fresh is but you know oh, there's yeah. these meal delivery services right already everything's cut and put in and you just take it home and assemble so i think you think of canva like you're going to the home fresh um home page and there's these food types there's dinner and in dinner there's chicken meat fish you know whatever so that's like a template and you pick the chicken template for chicken masala and you order that and you're done that's a lot different from saying okay you're in the middle of a supermarket you're going to make chicken masala have at it baby go find the chili go find the chicken go find the you know turmeric go find the i don't even know what's in chicken masala so you know <laughs> all that stuff so that's the difference yeah, and I mean, I think the the, the uh, corollary there is graphic designer versus chef, right? If you're a chef, it makes a lot of sense to be in the middle of a supermarket right. and make chicken marsala. But if you're just me, just a guy, you know, it, it doesn't make as much sense. The same as if you're a graphic designer and you're going to go and use Photoshop, right? Well, I think, you know, uh, you started on the, the example of a pitch, and I don't know if that's because most of your audience makes pitches and uses PowerPoint. But the beauty of Canva for this specific use is that with this design type, there are hundreds of pre-made 16 by nine templates. And you will be off to a much faster start, certainly than if you boot PowerPoint and you got a blank screen. Now. Don't get me wrong, Microsoft provides PowerPoint templates, but I'm telling you, they are nowhere as beautiful as Canva. Now, you might say, okay, so fine, you convinced me to use Canva to make my 16 by nine presentation, but I have to give a PowerPoint file to whoever's running the meeting or whatever, so I can't give them a Canva file. Well, Canva has the ability to save as PowerPoint. So you're in this beautiful world and you make this beautiful 16 by nine presentation at the very last step, you, you export as PowerPoint and you're home free. I mean, you know, mm -hmm. I, 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 good. I can attest <laughs> that uh, early on in the pandemic, my wife had this idea where, you know, her and her mom like to bake, they're going to start baking goods and selling them. And she's like, but what are we going to call the business? They came up with a name. Uh, it escapes me now what it was. It was something French. I think maybe the <laughs> the Petit Gâteau 
something like that. And she's like, but I don't have a logo. Like, how am I going to do that? I'm like, well, you can do that on Canva. So we did something on Canva, set up an Instagram page. And then what put the brakes on the whole operation was that we realized we had to get, you know, the, the health, uh, our health department to come through and like survey our <laughs> house. We're like, details. <laughs> you know, so we'll put it on break, put it on hiatus that uh, maybe they'll revisit it someday. But yeah, I could say that that was, that's the first time I introduced her to it was, was that. And it, yeah, it uh, does the trick for somebody like me, especially who does not have uh, design skills or, or even a design. Yeah. Eye. Gives you I mean, what you need, honestly, you'd have to work at making something ugly in Canva. You'd have to say to yourself, I am going to make something ugly. I am purposely doing this. You really have. It's not easy to make something ugly in Canva. Yeah. Agreed. It's not easy to make something beautiful in PowerPoint. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, just to switch gears a little bit, Guy, because, you know, one of the things that I've picked up on, on listening to your podcast is that you've read a lot of leadership books and, yeah. um, you know, and those books vary in sectors from, you know, military to, to sports or to, to tech. Yep. Um, and so a lot of these people that write these books have different perspectives and different leadership styles. So in your mind, there's obviously different philosophies, but in terms of leadership styles, uh, do you believe in a one size fits all approach or do you believe it kind of comes down to the individual and how they lead might not work for the, another person, but oh, it works for them? I mean, it, it, I think that's one of the challenges of leadership is that there's almost an infinite variety, right? So it depends on the industry. It depends on the age of the company. It depends on really even the geographic location. I mean, there's stuff you can get away with in Canada that you cannot get away in, you know, America. Um, and it depends on your personality. There, there's so many variables. And I think one of the challenges for any business book of any topic is that this is not science, right? So in a perfect world, there would be science. So you would take two identical products with two identical executive teams in two identical markets, and you would only change one variable and you would test the null hypothesis. <laughs> Good luck with that. I'd like to see how that's done. So, so what you have is a bunch of business books, mine included, that are, I use a negative term, but they are tainted by our experience. So let, let's take an extreme example. If you work for Apple and you work for Steve Jobs, you would tell people the key is the quality of the product. If you have a good product, everything else is easy. Marketing is easy. Evangelism is easy, et cetera, et cetera. Now, if you read a book by somebody else who succeeded because of his or her operational skills, they would say, well, there's a broad spectrum of products that are good enough, but what differentiates you is your ability to get it through the pipeline, to cost-effectively manufacture it, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So that, that's, I think, the inherent danger of reading business books is that, and, and the advice absolutely conflicts, right? So one book will tell you, you know, break things fast and pivot. Another book will say, you gotta believe in yourself Ignore the naysayers. If you believe it, just keep going until you succeed. Well, those two things are in direct opposition. Like, which one do you do? Yeah, I think it's, uh, that's why there's so many of them, right? Because none of them can be wrong by definition, right? Because there are so many. Um, it's it's an interesting thing. And I think uh, Mike brought up your podcast and, and you've had a chance to talk to a lot of remarkable people, some of them possibly leaders, some of them probably have some of these leadership books or have written them. Um, is there anything you can say 
through your time, you know, being a podcast host and, and talking to so many cool people, are there any threads between any of these sort of high functioners or the leaders that oh, you've yeah, been able yeah. to pick up on? Yeah. So first of all, I'm writing a book. I'm writing a book based on my interviews no, because, please. I mean, honestly, I think in in modern times, I mean, you know, like 2010 on. I don't know of a collection of interviews with more remarkable people than my podcast. Seriously. So, so we're talking, you know, Neil deGrasse Tyson, Jane Goodall, Steve Wozniak, Christy Yamaguchi. Um, we just, you know, go down the line, right? Many of them goats, greatest of all mm -hmm. times. And, and so there are definite threads. So one thread is that you can only connect the dots looking backwards which means that the, the optimal strategy I think is you got to draw a lot of dots when you're young because you just, you don't know what's going to connect. And if you think it's as simple as, okay, so you're born, you know, you, you do your, um, you, you have your instructional DVDs that <laughs> you know, focus your brain as you, as, as a toddler. And then of course, you know, you take calculus at age five and you start a foundation at age 10, and then you go to an Ivy league school, not to say that Canada doesn't have great educational institutions, <laughs> but I'm an American. Okay. Yeah. And so, you know, so you go to Yale and by the way, you're also a, a concert level violinist. And then you go to Harvard business school, you know, and it's just not like that. And so that's one thread. You got to paint a lot of dots. Um, another thread is that you have to seize opportunities that you don't know what it's going to turn out to be. And I think one of the best examples of both of these is Jane Goodall. So Jane Goodall got her job in Africa not because she had a PhD in zoology, but because she had secretarial skills. And the leaky organization lost a secretary and needed a secretary. And there was Jane. So, you know, I'm, I'm not suggesting that in order for you to be remarkable like Jane Goodall, you get secretarial skills. <laughs> but what I am saying is you just never know. And what's important is not how you got into the leaky organization. It's what you did after you got in the leaky organization. And that is a very important lesson because I think many people think, oh yeah, you know, this is a straight obvious path. I get this education, I get this job, I get this job, and this leads to remarkableness. It's not true. It's, it's almost random. Yeah, we it's it's funny not to not to plug our own podcast, but you're on it. We'd we'd interviewed Peter Mansbridge last year, and that's somebody who got his start because he was a baggage handler at the Churchill Airport in Manitoba. And one night he had to go on the intercom and make an announcement, and somebody heard his voice, got a job doing like nighttime radio. Uh, and then from there, obviously he went on to be like one of the most famous broadcasters in Canadian history. But wow. right place, right time. And obviously he wasn't a trained journalist at that point in his career, but he made the most of that opportunity. And obviously the rest is history. Yeah. I mean, and, and I think that kind of story is the norm. Mm -hmm. You know, I think the rare example is this carefully crafted rifle shot planned approach. 
I can't think of one as a matter of fact right now. Yeah, well, they end, they end up being very good mid-level managers, right? The people who've who've done yeah. everything very very succinctly. Uh, just uh, while while we're on the topic, one of the things that we found through the remarkable people that we've had on our podcast so far is a sense of musicality. A lot of people who are interested in music and have music skills often become these very sort of high functioning folks, and I'm oh. sure there's literature on that, right? But uh, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I I must admit. That is not something that's come up with me. I, I've had um, child prodigy violinist on my on my podcast. Uh, she had a Stradivarius stolen from her. It's a whole story about how she her Strad was stolen. It's a great story. Very very interesting. Um, yeah, I I I can't tell you that. Like I don't know if Jane Goodall can even hum a tune um, <laughs> or Neil deGrasse Tyson. I. I, I admit I have not explored that. Yeah, yeah. You, you never know what I mean. Because in, in some of the people we've talked to, it just it just kind of comes out and we don't have questions about music. And it just so happens yeah. that as they kind of talk, it's like, oh, you played drums and, you know, I played bass or they sang or they did whatever. Yeah. And it's just kind of not not everybody, but it's kind of becoming a, a, a bit of a correlation there. So we'll have to explore that uh, a little bit well, more. But, but I, uh, you know, I, I think that the maybe the big lesson we can draw from this is that remarkable people have diverse interests you know, they're not just yeah, yeah. <laughs> a primatologist. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the, and in fact, I, I would make the case that having diverse interests can help your primary interests because, you know, maybe you play music and in the audience is the Dean of the college of engineering. I mean, who knows, right. Mm -hmm. Uh, if you're just sitting in a dark cave planting mushrooms, which, <laughs> you know, it's going to limit the data you <laughs> come in contact with. Well, Guy, I wanted to ask you about this because, uh, you know, obviously we're talking to you about, you know, your work at Canvas, Chief Evangelist, but also your podcast. So as someone who has a pursuit outside of work, which is with podcasting, and of course you have other pursuits as well, but how important is it in your mind to have a creative outlet outside of work that can still help you in your career, even if it's not directly related to the field that you're in? Well, I, you know, I, I, this is a, this is a tricky question because I'm not going to sit here and tell you, you know, in order for you to be successful, you have, a, you must have a creative outlet. And then everybody listening is going to say, Oh shit, I have no other <laughs> interest, but now I'm going to take up the violin. You know, I mean, that's not what I'm saying. I'm, mm -hmm. I'm, I, I'm not, it's not, I, I cannot scientifically prove that there's causation there. But I will say that, you know, remarkable people are smart <laughs> and high energy. So they're going to have, I mean, you. I don't think you could prevent them from having outside interests and outside passions. And and I would I would strongly encourage people that, you know, when, when something interests you, you should scratch that itch. And in fact, I use the P word and I seldom do, but this, this concept that, you know, you have to find your passion and oh my God, you're 15 years old. You haven't found your passion yet. What's wrong with you? <laughs> so I found my passion for podcasting at 64. I think my podcast is the best work I've ever done in my career. And, and it started as just an interest and it became a passion. So not, 
I don't think that the way most people find their passions is truly, oh my God, it hit me like a clap of thunder and lightning one day and that was it. I think, you know, you oh, this is interesting. This isn't interesting. And you pursue something and then some things really turn out to be fascinating and obsessive for you. But to set yourself up for failure by saying, okay, I got to find my passion. I don't think that's how it works. You just yeah. have to have your eyes open. And like I said, draw a lot of dots. And one of those dots may turn out to be, you know, a circle and that circle is ever expanding. Yeah. You don't, you don't want a bunch of people after hearing this to, to start scheduling their time for their, their side hustle that they love so much, right? It, <laughs> yeah. it should be a bit more organic than that. Right. Yeah. I mean, I mean, you could make the case that, um, if you, if you, okay. I would make the case that if you simply have a growth mindset, that's all you need. If you have a growth mindset, meaning that you're open to new ideas, you realize you're not perfect yet, you realize that th there are other things to do, that you you can accomplish other skills uh, and uh, pursue other interests, that's enough. That's enough. That's all you need. Like yeah. I, I mean... I mean, you look at some American politicians. You you think they have a growth mindset? <laughs> I mean, they can't even freaking get 218 votes, and they have 222 people in their party. How I was gonna possible? I was gonna say I haven't I haven't looked at CNN yet today. I don't know where they're at yet on that. But you well, know, that's that's dating the podcast. Actually, this this podcast should exist outside of time. So <laughs> no, I, but, I shouldn't mention. No, but like how how long is it gonna take before you yeah. put this out? Yeah. 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 Uh, oh, next week. Next week. Yeah, I think yeah, on this Tuesday. one's going to come out next yeah. week. Okay. Yeah. I'm pretty confident by next week we won't have a speaker of the house. <laughs> I, I think you're pretty safe. Yeah. That's pretty good. That's good. That's good. That's really good, guy. Yeah. Could you imagine if this was slated for February and it was still that, that statement's still true, guy? Oh, man. Yeah. <laughs> We'll see. I think the record's in the hundreds. Of, uh, February of which year? Yeah. Yeah. It's a good point. Yeah. It's a good point. Uh, Guy, I want to ask you a quick one about something you mentioned in your book about emailing. Uh, just how if someone doesn't persistent in emailing you back, uh, you just sort of take it as them not necessarily uh, having something clearly like uh, really they need to get back to you on, right? So, so, so if you took it, the flip side of that, at what point do you give up on trying to connect with someone if you don't hear back from them? Well, this is. A trick question because I'm 64 years old. I'm not looking to get another job. I'm not filthy rich, but you know, I'm I'm stable. Okay. So if you're old and stable, that's a different attitude than if you're young and hungry. Yeah. Yeah. And um, you know, so I guess the question is if you're young and hungry. Where does hunger end and pain in the ass begin? <laughs> yeah, there's a there's a fine line between being a pest and being persistent. And yeah, yeah. And, and, and I would say that that fine line is probably three. Yeah. But I, I, I think my better advice would be let, let's not push that fine line. So how can you maximize the impact of the first email? So. My advice is 90% of it is the subject line. Mm. 
So if you have a dumbass subject line that doesn't evoke curiosity or interest, you're screwed. Okay. <laughs> That's number one. Number two is I think the maximum length for an email, five sentences, right? Now, mm -hmm. most emails, people think that they have to build a case and I don't they think they're prosecuting a, <laughs> a crime or something, right? And so most emails is like three paragraphs, who you are. You know, like I give a shit where you have your degree from and what your history is. I mean, you know, in a sense I do, but I don't need your whole family history. Like to me, and maybe I'm the only person in the world, in the first sentence, I really want to know what do you want? Because right there, I can decide I'm going to help you or not, right? If somebody says, oh, you know, take an extreme, can you help me get a CMO position at Canva? Well, I know I cannot do that, right? <laughs> so, so, or can, can you invest $5 million in my startup? So I'd like to know right off. And I will tell you that I think the quality of an email is really determined by how interesting your idea or product or pitch is and that's whether you are asking someone to come on a podcast or invest or advise or whatever it's like what's the quality of your idea and I, but see i think people spend like literally five paragraphs introducing themselves <laughs> yeah. yeah and you know i mean now, again, I got I to gotta say this over and over again. This could be just me. <laughs> Maybe for other people, they want five paragraphs of family history. You know, what's your academic background? What's your work history? And another tip I would give you is that if you really want to break through the noise, you would have someone who I know or know of initiate the contact. So... I mean, we're taking an extreme here, right? Let me just say, if Jane Goodall sent me an email and said, Guy, I have this friend. You should have her on our podcast. Guess what? <laughs> Guess freaking what's going to happen. Now, that is an extreme case. But even, even if it's the person that I, if it's a person I know of, which is to say, you know, I'm, He's dead now, but, you know, I'm Clayton Christensen of Harvard Business School, and I just ran across this really interesting CEO who should be on your podcast. Oh, that gets through the noise, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So, um, okay, so that's one way of getting through the noise. It's like having someone you know or know of you do the initial. Because I tell you something, people are lazy. People are looking for proxies, Right. Yeah. So the and and the proxy is so ah, this famous person wrote to me about this other person. This person I know wrote to me about this other person. So that's a proxy that already passes the filter. So so that's one way. Now, don't get me wrong. This strategy can go awry. And the greatest example of that in the history of mankind is Terranos. Right. So the proxy for Terranos is Henry Kissinger and George Schultz are on my board of directors. And, you know, they have they have intimate knowledge of biochemistry. So they know that one drop of blood can diagnose everything. 
I'm being sarcastic there, mm -hmm. but you know, if you get an email that says George Schultz and Henry Kissinger are on my board, it's hard to ignore yeah. that. I must admit. Yeah. And then, and then, so next you get you get Walton money, right? And now you got Walton money, and you got these name VCs, and you got George Schultz, and et cetera, et cetera. And pretty soon, yeah, you you know, and none of you are doing due diligence, and you all believe, well, if good enough for George, I mean. Freaking George, I mean, he he controlled the State Department, whether we went to war, you would think he could figure out if this diagnostic is going to work. So, of course. Right. Yeah. Um, so that's the danger. Of what I just suggested. And another uh, tip I would have for email, we could spend the whole podcast on email. <laughs> another another tip I have for email is for crying out loud, do your research. Right. So if you write to me. You should know that I think my podcast is my best work. You should know that I love surfing. You should know that I worked in the Macintosh division. So all of these are entry points, right? So I'm from Canada and, you know, I'm a longboarder in Torfino or in Vancouver or wherever the hell you guys in Canada surf and, you know, whatever. Or I just yeah. listened to your podcast and I'm from Canada. So I know who Chip Wilson is, the founder of Lululemon. Okay. So those kind of things, it just signals to me, this person did some work. They know I'm into <laughs> surfing. They know I'm, you know, interviewed Chip Wilson they they know you know they know that i used to love hockey et cetera, et cetera. i'm i'm they should look for proof points that they did the work mm -hmm. i i can't tell you how many emails i get where the mail merge didn't work and it's like dear brackets first yeah. name right uh, delete or, <laughs> or the wrong name, right? Yeah, or the yeah. nothing worse than somebody spelling your name wrong in an email, right? Yeah. To start things off. <laughs> or or so. dear guy Kawasaki, right? I mean, so, and those people just, just because I'm sometimes a sadist, I write them back. I said, well, nice mail merge there. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, I think those are ways. Now, so to put this all together, if someone sends me an email that says, I loved your latest book, Wise Guy. I listen to your podcast every episode, and I love to surf. I guarantee you, if those three things were in the subject line, I will read your email. <laughs> there, you, there you go, yeah. ladies and gentlemen. If you, wanna a, get, if you want to get guys' attention, put it on a poster. <laughs> uh, but you, you, you brought this up, guy. I was going to ask you because before we let you go, I had to, I have to ask this because you and I have something in common. When I was reading your book, you know, you talked about. Uh, you know, how much you love hockey and how you discovered it later in life. Yeah. And I want to, I'll give you a quick story that I was, uh, I'm a Canadian guy, but um, I didn't play hockey to an organized level. I knew how to skate a little bit when I was a kid, we had like backyard rinks and stuff like that, but I never played hockey at an organized level. And then as I got older, I started to, you know, fall in love with the game again. I started writing yeah. about hockey and I wanted to play more, but I was always, at least in Canada, scared to play because I knew that all my friends who played growing up were infinitely better than me and I didn't want to embarrass myself. And then one day I finally <laughs> like got up the urge to buy, I bought old hockey equipment from a guy down the road for 25 bucks. And it was the <laughs> first time I'd ever worn like pants, all the gear. Yeah. And I delayed putting it off, but I finally found a good group of guys who were kind of at the same skill level as me. And I resisted it for so many years because I was just so worried that I'd be bad at it. But then I just kind of embraced it. Of course, I'm going to be bad at it. I, I never played as a kid, really. So 
And it was the best thing I ever did because now I play regularly with this awesome group of guys. I play with my friends now who are much better than me younger, but I at least, you know, can keep up a little bit. Yeah. Um, you know, can you maybe talk about, you know, what drew you to hockey and did you kind of have any of those learning curves or is it just me too scared? No, to hit no, the no. Ice? Oh. Um, first of all, how old were you when you started? Uh, I had just, it was just after I got married. So I would have been 29 shit (laughs) i started playing hockey at 44 okay so 15 years from now you start playing hockey i'm from hawaii there are no ponds that are frozen in my backyard okay so we went to a hockey game first time in my life and i took my two kids and my wife and my kids love the game And, and you know they were big sports fans but I got to say hockey is the best sport, right? Because I'm, I'm preaching to the choir, talking to Canadians, but like what other sport has violence, has physics, has math, constant action. You know, there's no freaking flipping and flopping like your legs broken for 90 seconds. And then, you know, five seconds later, you're off running on the soccer field, right? None of that bullshit. You would be humiliated if you, you know, in fact, there's a penalty for doing that in hockey, right? Whereas it's rewarded in soccer. So, so there's that. And, and then there's just like, hockey is so hard because with, I think with basketball and other sports, you know, you know, people can basically run, right? <laughs> Skating is an unnatural act. <laughs> and so my kids took up hockey and my wife told me, I don't want you to be one of these Silicon Valley dads just sitting on the sidelines watching your Blackberry most of the time when your kids are not on the ice. I want you to participate in their lives. And, you know, I'm not stupid. I listen to my wife. So I decide to take up hockey with them. I didn't even know you had to sharpen skates the first time. But anyway, that's the whole lot of the law. So anyway, and the first game was like this parents kids game. Never played, never did it. So there was like two practices before. And Scott McNeely, the founder of Sun, who's a very good hockey player, was in this practice. And I tell you, I stepped on the ice. And it was like a religious experience. I mean, this was a sport that was so beautiful. And and so I was playing hockey three or four times a week. I set up a sport court in my backyard. And I would, I, I think I literally, I took literally thousands of practice shots. And I had a great wrist shot, let me tell you, okay. And so... And it was, you know, it's just like, it's kind of, maybe it's my Japanese DNA. So, you, you know, you have this, this stereotype of Japanese people and, and like the samurai, he'll practice pulling out his sword a thousand times a day and practice, you know, some kind of sword maneuver a thousand times, right? That's like the Japanese DNA. Well, that's what I did with the wrist shots. And so it just, the whole thing appealed to me. And I just loved it. I, I, I would go on business trips to Canada and, you know, I played in Vancouver. I played on the ice at Ryerson in Toronto. And um, I've played with a lot of ex-NHL people who just fed me puck after puck after puck. I mean, 
yeah. I played I played at Ryerson with Eric Lindros. Wow. I was on Eric Lindros's line and I still couldn't score. But anyway, so, <laughs> so anyway, yeah, you got me. But now let me tell you something. Mike, if you think hockey is a great sport, you should try surfing. Oh my god. I'm telling you, surfing is I, I hate to say, I think surfing is even more interesting and it's harder because with hockey, more or less, you know, the ice is ice. I mean, you know, I mean, there can be better quality ice, but it's not like a changing wave. Okay. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, 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 you know, with surfing, you have to worry about the water, the direction of the water, the height of the water, the wind. You have to worry about every other kook out there. You have to worry about your board. I mean, there's a lot of variables. Hockey has a lot of variables too, but surfing is a whole new world, man. And so I encourage you. I took up surfing at 60. So you, you know, you have another 30 years of rest. Yeah, no, I, I think I, I think I could do that. It's funny because like my wife and I honeymooned in California and we spent a few days uh, like in Venice beach. And there was always yeah. this guy who had surfing lessons on the beach and every day we're like, we'll do it tomorrow. And then yeah. we eventually left and we went somewhere else in California. And we always talk about how like we should have done it because like, when are we going to be out there again? And I hope to go back some point, but uh, haven't, haven't crossed it off my well, list just yet. Let me, let me give you a piece of advice here. So you take that surfing lesson, you will get up, you will surf that day. I mean, unless you're a total klutz, but you know, <laughs> if you play hockey, you have enough balance to surf. I guarantee you I'm living proof of that. But I think like hockey, you, you, you probably understand this like hockey. It's not something that you play once a month, right? I mean, if you're into hockey, you play twice a week at least. Surfing is the same way. You, you're not going to get good and you're not going to really have a good time until you surf a lot. So it ain't going to happen in Ontario, okay? Yeah. You're going to have to move to Vancouver or California. Just That's just the way it is. I mean, I'll tell I, you, uh, there's there's one thing I will say about Ontario and surfing. There is a subculture of, uh, if you think the people in, in Hawaii surfing are kooks, these are <laughs> even bigger kooks because they go when uh, the November winds are on the Great Lakes and they, they wear the dry suits and they go out there when there's actual uh, <laughs> well, waves big enough to surf on the okay. Great Lakes. It's unreal. Okay, wait. So just so you know, so you, you don't make this mistake, the term kook is applied to someone who's clueless about surfing and is, you know, wearing the goggles and the helmet and the GoPro helmet, um, the <laughs> GoPro camera on the helmet and is I surfing see. on a phone board and going out when he or she should not go out because it's dangerous. What you just described is a hardcore surfer, <laughs> yeah, somebody yeah. Who, right? Somebody who'll surf on uh, the Great Lakes in negative 20 degrees is yeah. not a coup. No, they yeah, may yeah. be insane, but they're not a coup. <laughs> They're not gotcha. a coup. That's not a coup. Gotcha. That's a, I didn't know the term was that specific. <laughs> yeah, it's well, you, I don't want to be racist, but this is happening in Canada, so you know, I I, I don't care. <laughs> I, I, would say, I would say that, and I'm Asian, so I can say this: most yeah. coups are Asian, really, <laughs> really. Statistically, statistically, yeah, yeah. you know, we may represent 
15% of the people in the water, but we represent 80% of the kooks. <laughs> That's a funny Venn diagram. <laughs> um, listen, Guy, uh, you, you've been so generous with your time and we had a lot of fun and, and we want to thank you for joining us. And do, if you are ever in rural Canada, just tell them your name is Guy Kawasaki and I think <laughs> it'll definitely ingratiate yourself into that community if it's French Canadian or not. But we really want to thank you for joining us and we, we had a super time and and, uh, and and just really inspirational and fun to have you on. Well, we'll just go have maple syrup <laughs> and donuts. I had some I had some maple syrup this morning. You see? You see? Yeah. That's it. All right. Let me live in the stereotype. Thanks, Guy. Or guy. Right. Yeah. yeah. Thanks so much, and Guy. I hope, really. You know, I hope you're listening. Uh, if I may plug my podcast. Of course, really, of course. Okay. No kidding. My podcast is the best work I've ever done. And this podcast is 90% the guest, 10% me. It's not me trying to dominate the conversation at all. And the whole point of this podcast is to help you be remarkable. It's not about me. And, and I kind of view this as my moral obligation because if you use the word Venn diagram, I'll give you a Venn diagram. So if you draw one circle with people who have access to people like Jane Goodall, and then if you drew another circle with people who have the background to know, or at least the discipline to find out what exactly should I ask Jane Goodall, you know, not dumbass questions like, what was it like to be in Africa? And then if you draw <laughs> another circle with the ability to get the person to answer, if you drew those three circles, I'm in the middle. That's awesome. I guarantee you, I guarantee you, you will get value out of my podcast. That's awesome. That's a great way of putting it. Yeah, <laughs> nope. It's I, I I truly do enjoy it, Guy. Uh, again, I was listening to the episode this week, and I already ordered uh, Hector Gonzalez's book, Icky yeah, Guy. So guy. you're uh, guy. you're adding Icky to my guy. library every week. So uh, I appreciate you know it. that book, that book changed my life because, um, is there a time limit here? So anyway, no, no not really. <laughs> a long time ago, my wife made me read a book called "If You Want to Write," and this for it, I was a writer, so the title suited me, but. Take any creative endeavor and substitute it for the word right. So if I want a podcast, if you want to make movies, if you want to, you know, be a programmer, whatever, this book is for you. So that book has shaped my life. And then about three months ago, I read Ikigai and it's I-K-I-G-A-I. -I. It's not Iki and G-U-Y. Okay. So so Ikigai is this Japanese concept of your sort of life calling, like what makes you get up in the morning ready to face the world and indeed anxious to face the world. And so my Ikigai is podcasting. Some people's Ikigai could be making the best skate or the, you know, best maple syrup or the, you know, or saving the earth. I mean, I don't want to give the impression that Ikigai has to be this lofty thing. It can be, you could make the best chili. That could be your Ikigai. God bless you. So that's what that book about. And, and until I read it a few months ago, I really didn't understand why I love podcasting so much. And then I clearly understood it. And I'll give you one more book to read. Um, can I swear on your program? Of course. Yeah. Okay, it's, it's Canadian listeners. So there's a guy <laughs> named Mark Manson 
and he wrote a book, The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck. Okay. And I'm telling you, that book is also something that should be required reading. And one of the most important concepts in that book is he says that when you have, he didn't say it in these words because he didn't use the word ikigai, but when you find your ikigai, you will truly know it because your ikigai is inevitably going to involve shit sandwiches, <laughs> right? So if, if hockey is your ikigai, the shit sandwich in hockey is maybe you dump the puck in the corner and you got to go dig it out, right? That's not an enjoyable thing, but I mean, actually, it is enjoyable if it's your ikigai. And so for me, the, the, the shit sandwich for podcasting is I got to prepare for three hours. Then I got to record it. Then I edit it. And then somebody else edits it. Like three people edit it. Yeah. And so this is like it, if you're a writer, the shit sandwich is you have got to edit. Yeah. It's not about, you know, the words just flow on the page. You got to dig it out. And so if you find it you love editing or you love editing podcasting or you love digging the puck out of the corner. When you know that you found shit sandwiches that you love, you're probably doing what your, your ikigai is. You got to love your shit sandwiches. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I look forward to reading it because I, I, I feel like after listening to that episode, like I, I think I know what it is. I think it's writing. I think it's a writing with focus on hockey because the shit sandwich is always transcribing the interviews that you have because it's the longest part to get to the part where you actually get to write. Uh, but I love it because it leads to those stories. Right. So, yep. yeah. Yeah. So you, you edit your transcriptions. I'll, I'll, yeah. Like I'll put them on my computer, listen to them and then like manually type them in. Okay. That is a shit sandwich. Yeah. And I, and I know that, <laughs> I know that transcription software exists, but I, for some reason, I don't know, maybe if it's the sadist in me, but like, I, I like to go back and do it. I mean, yeah. you, there's times where you curse yourself that the interview went on for an hour and a half and now I have to transcribe it, which typically takes twice the length of the interview. So now you're typing oh, yeah. for three hours. Oh, yeah. but, oh, believe me, but, I know you're at, Yeah, yeah. But at the end, you know, the payoff is right. a story that you wanted to tell. So, yeah. Do, do you use something called Descript? Do you know what that is? No, no. Oh, man, I'm about to change your life. <laughs> yeah. And in exchange for changing your life, I want you to tell every one of your subscribers, they must subscribe to my podcast. That's the deal. Okay. We'll do that. So what Descript does is you upload your audio, Descript then transcribes it. Okay. But this is not for the sake of getting the transcription, which you can get the sake of it transcribes it. And then you can do things to the text to audit to, excuse me, you can edit the text to edit the audio. Oh. So I'll show you a use case. So let's say you interview somebody and he's not as articulate as I am. And he says, um, and, uh, and well, and you know, and geez, hmm, let me think about that. So he uses a lot of filler words. All right. So you can find all the ums and the huh and the well and the you know. And you can just select them and tell the script, ignore those. And then when you listen to the audio, they're all gone. Oh. So let, let's say you ask me, like, what was it like working for Steve Jobs? And I go, well, um, geez, I thought about that a lot. Hmm, yeah. Uh, well, it was a shit sandwich that I loved. And of all that text, all you care about was 
You want the you want the podcast to say, guy, what was it like working for Steve Jobs? And all you want your listener to hear is it was like eating a shit sandwich. You don't need all the ums and ahs and wells yeah. and you know all that. So you select all that text and you tell the script, ignore all that bullshit, just play. It was like eating a shit sandwich. And so this is a way to edit your podcasts in text as opposed to trying to move your needle back and forth. Oh, let yeah. me grab that section where he says, um, which is very hard doing it, right? So this script will change your life. That's hey. a game changer for us, yeah. I think. I will we'll check that out. I will check that out. We will check that out for sure. You are you are going to salute me. You are going to... <laughs> You're going to nominate me for Canadian Podcaster of the Year when you try. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> well, that okay. was that well, was o- that was overtime uh, with Guy Kawasaki. So thank you so much for for that. And uh, again, uh, awesome awesome to chat with you today. Really really fun. Two of you never said a eh once. Uh, <laughs> we we, were... so we, uh, we deleted them with the script. I think. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Awesome. Thanks so much, Guy. Take care. Bye-bye. Take care. Take care. You know, I, I'm just thinking now about, uh, I meant to ask him what, what style of hockey player he, he was, or if he still is playing hockey regularly, he did divulge that he has a great wrist shot. So probably a winger. Yeah. So he's not like me, which is, uh, my, I've, I've realized over the years that like, obviously I don't have good hands. So like my thing is I used to go straight to the net and by happenstance, maybe I'll get the puck on my stick Chip or maybe in. I won't flub it and it'll go in the net. I'll just create some chaos and it'll go in. And that's usually how my goals are scored is in the blue paint and they're what they call the garbage goals, but Hey, a goal is a goal. Well, I wonder if he didn't score on Eric Lindros's line because Eric was parked in front of the net as he usually is. Well, he's probably say, yeah. getting all those garbage goals. He was trying. He had to feed Eric Lindros the puck, and maybe that's why it didn't happen. But I'm sure that's he would right. have picked up plenty of assists playing on Eric Lindros' line. You're getting points no matter no matter where you are, right? Yeah, and I think uh, this was a great way to kick off 2023 for the Unlikely Innovators. Uh, I think Guy is definitely a podcaster to look up to for us, and uh, if we can get a modicum of the uh, sort of success. Uh, that he's had uh, it'll be a job well done for us but we have a really good year of guests uh, lined up for you guys um, and uh, we hope that uh, that you enjoy this journey as it continues uh, for Mike and I absolutely and I will fulfill my uh, my promise to Guy which was that after divulging the the describe so that I could you know, we could make our lives easier with podcasting with writing go subscribe to Guy Kawasaki's Remarkable People you won't regret it it's a great podcast I don't say that as a as an ad man I say that as a listener so Check that one out, but also subscribe to the Unlikely Innovators if you're not already subscribing to that. Um, give us a rating if you want to, but otherwise, we, we give you new episodes every week, so please uh, mm-hmm. be sure to come back because uh, you know it's a, it's a treat for us to get to talk to people like Guy, but it's an even bigger treat to give you those conversations. And with that, we'll see you next time on the Unlikely Innovators. Happy New Year. The Unlikely Innovators with Mike Comito and Steve Gravel, presented by Cambrian R&D and the Center for Smart Mining.